All right, good afternoon. Turn with me today to the book of Titus. Uh, it's a little book between the Timothys and Hebrews. Uh, so if a couple pages stick together, you, uh, it's easy to miss, so go ahead and locate it. As a, as a layman with no formal theological training, it's, uh, it's readily obvious to me when I go to prepare a message uh, how valuable that detailed contextual understanding is. And often in my case, uh, how valuable it would be um, because creating any accurate modern picture of a passage is very challenging without full clarity on the historical and cultural elements. So fortunately, God decided to align Titus with the culture of today so closely that there's really not a lot of effort required. So thank God for that, for me. Um, yet on the, the other hand, uh, it really presents some direct challenges where we're literally looking into the mirror, exposing that we, the church, Christians, are really facing the same kinds of challenges 2,000 years on. So God calls us to be Christians within a culture without being negatively uh, affected or becoming cultural Christians. So Titus, he was one of Paul's most trusted assistants. He's mentioned in Acts, Galatians, 2 Timothy, and numerous times in 2 Corinthians. So the, the introduction to the book of Titus in my uh, Nelson Study Bible uses these terms to describe Paul's viewpoint of Titus. Point man, pinch hitter, clutch player, go getter. So these are the kind of terms that you would use to describe a person that you can count on to get the job done. An individual who's willing to put in the work necessary to accomplish a task successfully. Someone who is already known to possess the specific skills and training to successfully complete a task. At the time that the responsibility is handed over, you have no concern that it will be done. The timing of the letter is between Paul's two imprisonments between uh, in the mid-60s AD, uh, shortly following Paul's own journey, to the same location that Titus receives it, the letter uh, in goes to Crete. Uh, Crete is a fairly large island in the Mediterranean Sea, about 160 miles long and 35 miles wide. sits 100 miles southeast of Greece. Uh, and it's known as one of the primary locations uh, that the uh, Greek mythology was born. So the Cretans believed that Zeus uh, was a man turned god who rose to rule the gods and was born and buried uh, on the island of Crete. Zeus was primarily known uh, for seducing women, and the Cretans embraced and worshipped him uh, and sought uh, to have their own exploits. Um, and in an age far before social media, the entire known world knew the Cretans uh, as being based, their society was based on principles of sexual immorality. They specialized in exhibiting and honing personal skills necessary to fulfill their desires. Lying, deceitfulness, and, and really just a general disregard for the well-being of one another. Paul planted a church in Crete while he was there, but 
it's such a large island that in general you can just say that there were just no Christians there at all. Just untrusting, untrustworthy folk <coughs> whose beliefs were driven by the most bizarre natures. They were a totally messed up pagan people. Uh, really, though, they're just a tiny bit more pagan than our culture is today. Paul, he knew he was not sending Titus on an errand as he had done many times. It's generally thought that Titus spent the rest of his life on the Isle of Crete. So there were several problems that Paul knew had to be addressed in Crete. Uh, there was a need for proper leadership. False teaching had entered the church. And the culture itself was simply diabolically opposed to godliness. Uh, and when Christians are facing living in, living with, alongside a culture that is directly opposed to God's word, and you allow false teaching to stay in a church, only one of two things can happen. The first is that the church gets separated uh, from the culture in order to, to uh, avoid it, or the church integrates itself into the culture, uh, becoming just like it. So it's very likely that it was the second option as well as happening in Crete. Um, but Paul takes a, a different approach than he has in, in other letters to other churches as far as not directly attacking the false teaching. Uh, he more um, wants to look at it from a point of view um, where uh, he's not... Uh, he doesn't have to uh, focus in, in a single direction or another direction. He wants to create a solid picture on one approach that's going to solve multiple problems. Uh, so with the general context for Titus set, let's read the greeting itself, uh, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. So it's actually quite unusual for Paul to have such a theological emphasis in his greetings. Um, out of this greeting, uh, I want to focus um, on how culture can distort Christianity to make it ineffective and generally address these points. Uh, first is that there's errors or error in legalism. Uh, we're going to look at where our hope should lie and can our faith be culture-proof? So Paul uses three uh, uh, titles for himself um, in, in this greeting. The first is a servant of God. So Paul often refers to himself as a servant or as a slave, but this is actually uh, the only place in all of his letters that he refers to himself as a servant of God. It's perhaps the most general title possible. I serve and 
act upon the authority of the creator of the universe, but servant of God is how the Old Testament prophets referred to themselves. So in essence, this title uh, is giving a direct connection from Paul to the likes of Moses and David and all those referred in times past as being direct spokesmen of God. So the Jews in particular had a history of killing people who said they were servants of God. And, you know, that was largely because uh, they repeatedly and continually pointed out the failure of God's people to live in a way that the Lord, uh, you know, wanted them to live. Uh, So they they brought uh, information about the Israelites' future enslavements. They Represented and and represented the laws and regulations of God that the Israelites did not want to consider. Uh, So, uh, you know, as we look through uh, the introduction here, um, there are some myths about Christianity that that we can address. The first. is that Christianity is about controlling our behavior because Christianity is legalistic. So legalistic faith is saying that my righteousness, my salvation, according to the sight of God, is established based on good works. So as a parent, you don't claim your child as your own only when they obey you. Does your child have to obey you in order for you to love them? Certainly, each of us as parents would say that we love our kids whether they obey us or not. So, they did not become our children once they obeyed us. They became our children once God gave them to us, before they even knew what obedience was. And we call them to obedience because we know that certain things are better for them than other things. It's not because we want to control them. We want to set them up for success, and not everything that they will uh, that they want will end in the joy and fulfillment uh, that they think it will. The truth about Christianity is not about the rules that we can find, but about the joy that we can find in the redemption through God's Son Jesus. Obedience to the principles of God from the beginning was intended to produce a transformation within us to cause us to be more of the likeness of Christ, to mold our thoughts and desires away from the things of this world toward the things of God. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and good works do not gain us favor. God gives us favor by changing our hearts to begin with, and The result of a changed heart is seen through kindness, tenderness, joy, peace, patience, and other attributes that result from the heart that is softened from God. So let's take a quick look at Romans chapter 6, where Paul explains this idea, um, starting at the, the midway through verse 19. Romans chapter 6, about halfway through verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, 
leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 20, the the word free is a state of being. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. The way we were when we lived in sin was to not have to worry about consequences, to not have to consider how our words and actions impacted those around us. But in verse 22 and 23, the word free is an action that was performed for us, set free from sin, free gift of God. Submitting ourselves in obedience to God's principles, the same principles that the prophets of old spoke, sets us free now to allow change of our heart to occur, a transformation that now can be expressed through the life of a man, Jesus. The Cretans had Zeus, a man turned God, gone from weakness to power, to be feared and worshipped, taking all that he desired by force, and murdering anyone that stood in his way. In Greek mythology, the interaction with the gods turned out very badly for mankind. Christianity, though, is bringing the exact opposite. God turned man. The, the almighty creator, worthy of worship, humbled, taking the form of his own creation to personally show us how to live. And he did it to become an intercessor for us and even gave us the Holy Spirit to help mold and shape our, our hearts. So interaction with God, with Christ, results in freedom from the things that would make us ashamed. He paid for them already at the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He paid the price of death that we all deserve in order to give us a free gift, the gift of our heart's transformation to follow him now and into eternal life. Paul's second uh, apostolic title is Apostle of Jesus Christ, which furthers the authority that Paul has received and implies that he labors for people to turn to faith in Christ, which is the reason for his ministries. So let's uh, start back at, at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages begin. So, as I said before, there were presumably no believers in Crete before Paul arrived. He was sent to find the elect uh, and, and build them up with the gospel of Christ. So, in a broad sense, faith 
and knowledge of truth is referring to the entire gospel proclamation, all the teachings that have been presented in regard to the gospel of Christ, which Paul says is in line with or produces godliness. Now, I'd also kind of like to go out on a limb a little and say that I don't think that the believer's knowledge of truth is just restricted to the understanding of the gospel truths in just a literary and intellectual sense. Um, We also have personal experience with the transition of our own hearts and the subsequent thought reversals, the concepts that have enabled us to engage in behaviors that we would now be ashamed of. So we, we've gained understanding of the joy and the freedom uh, that we've experienced by the weight of our own sins being removed as we have turned them over to Christ. And also, uh, as we've made necessary amend, amendments with others uh, as we have had to, because we obviously um, can offend one another and have to make amends with them. But if we ask the question, is faith and knowledge the source of godliness? Or is godliness the external evidence of faith and knowledge? So again, that that question, is faith and knowledge the source of godliness? Or is godliness the external evidence of faith and knowledge? The answer is actually yes to both. But what we truly receive and what fruit is born depends on the intention of our heart. God is ready to respond to us through his word. He's ready to convict us, to bring us to repentance, encourage us, refine us, and prepare us for the things that are to come. So the first myth is we must be cautious uh, that uh, God wants to control our behavior But he's not just trying to control our behavior. He changes our hearts. So the next myth about Christianity is this. That you must have a clean life, a clean past, in order to come into Christianity. This is a lie directly from the mouth of the devil to shame people from coming in to hear the truth of the gospel that's free for the taking. But... Looking from the outside, it can really be easily perceived that Christians have it all together. And people create an us versus them separation in their mind. Now, I spent almost 15 years of my life running from God. And I had all the excuses that I needed to base the fact that I was running from God directly from the church itself, from members and leaders in the church. And I resisted going back to church for quite some time, even after God had gotten back a hold of my heart, because I knew all too well the hypocrisy and the intellectual faith and the cultural Christianity that inhibits, inhabits the church. And one day, uh, my wife compared a church to a hospital. And I really thought through that comparison, and there actually really is a lot of parallels 
between what you find in a hospital and what you find within the church. So you've got physicians, you know, having the highest level of authority like pastors. You've got mid-levels, you know, like NPs and PAs that support the physicians and help keeping them from getting overwhelmed like elders should do in the church. You know, you have nurses who ensure care is implemented and that the patients have what they need, which is similar to like what the deacons should be doing to monitor and care for church members. And then you have all the support staff, techs, laundry, you know, kitchen, janitors, you know, and and they are like the the Christian members, you know, engaging each other in the congregation and support and community. <clears throat> and then you have the patients. <clears throat> They begin in the ER with someone faking an injury or ailment just to get a party pack for the weekend. Uh, but they are, are people there that are following up on conditions or surgeries that, and they may be getting better, maybe getting worse. They have some who have an immediate emergency that will die if they're not attended to. Those who are about to be discharged because they're expected to make a full recovery. Those who are actively dying and all those in between. <clears throat> and I came to the realization that the church was a place for the lost, just like the hospital is a place for the sick. And, and I was able to resolve, you know, going back to church with that in, in, in mind, that it's not about what I can get from the church. It's really about what can glorify God for me being in the church. So if there's no sick, there's no need for a hospital, <clears throat> you know. But we must be careful where we place our faith. If we want to make sure that we're not disappointed, then we should place our faith <clears throat> in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Even with all of our imperfection, Jesus, the perfect man, God, as man came to earth in order to be rejected so that we could be accepted. The mission to the lost must be grounded in certainty, not wishful thinking. The hope of salvation through the work of Christ is a hope that comes from outside this life. It is not a hope that exists within our culture. Uh, so let's flip over to Hebrews, uh, just a couple pages here, to chapter 6, and read starting in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
the hope of salvation has nothing to do with our past, but it has everything to do with God's past and God's promises. Emphasizing to the creations about God's inability to lie would have had special meaning. Just skipping ahead just a little bit in Titus, Titus 1.12, Paul quotes a Cretan writer who himself says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So in the end, it, it, it's really up to each of us the kind of Christian that we will be. Our natural tendency is to be carnally minded. We walk according to the flesh, seeking the things that we desire. We are all in danger living in this culture of being or becoming carnally minded. We often struggle to balance work, play and family time and and rest. And adding time for God may be one of the easiest things to fall off of our schedule. But if we don't spend adequate time with the Lord in prayer and in His Word, then we're just going to be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we're just going to be like babies that have to be fed milk. And he says that, that they weren't even ready for milk. As Christians, we should be led by the Holy Spirit. Let the Lord engage us in our lives as he reveals himself to us in his scripture. Encouraging believers to feed themselves should be a key principle that comes from the pulpit of every church. So Paul's third uh, apostolic title is preacher, which comes from the third verse. And at a proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So there's one final myth I'd like to, to address, and that is that the primary way that God sends out his people is through feelings and emotions. The truth is that God uses circumstances to place his people where he wants them. You don't have to have a change of circumstance for God to use you. God wants to use you right where you are now. He doesn't have to change my circumstance. He's able to use me where I am now. Sometimes we just need to open our eyes, or the Spirit needs to open our eyes to the opportunities that are clearly around us. We need to be able to see them. Paul was not even supposed to be in Crete. His journey by ship was supposed to follow the east and north coast of the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem to Italy. But you can read in Acts 27 that the winds wouldn't cooperate and they ended up having to sail to Crete. Paul never woke up and decided that his mission was Crete. He, he just simply landed there and took it as an opportunity to further the gospel. So are, are we able to use the circumstances in our life to further God's plans? Are we okay just looking around at and engaging with the community that's that's already in front of us? You know, the Bible Belt in, in the USA, it, it's a tough place to witness. It is. Because most people have heard the message. 
And the great majority already claim Christianity, regardless of how they live their life. And there's, there's a general checkbox mentality. Uh, and, and a lot of it is due to fear-based doom and gloom evangelism that you know, kind of got kids all wide-eyed and you know, ready to say a prayer that a lawyer wrote. Now, it's no lie that faith is as simple as believing in Christ. But there is more to it. Let's, let's read what James has to say uh, in chapter 2 uh, about having faith with nothing to demonstrate uh, its existence. So James 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say to you, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So how do we live in a culture that's so opposed to godliness, that's so opposed to our beliefs, and not be corrupted by or overwhelmed uh, by the culture? So let's let's look ahead just a little bit to Titus one nine because I I think it actually has the answer. Titus one nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. Hold firm to the trustworthy word of God. Apply the word to our life. We need to read and meditate on the word daily and study it seriously. There are many things around us that are trying to get our attention. They're trying to influence us and influence how we think and redirect our focus from the principles of God so that they can dominate our conversations. You want us to just talk about sports. You know, just talk about the weather, just talk about politics, just talk about the culture. Keep us from engaging with folk that need to hear the word of God. And if we're holding it firm, the trustworthy word of God, and then we can keep the culture from winning our affection and leading us into any form of idolatry. Anything, person, or practice that we place more important than God. The culture around us wants to destroy our witness. You know, it wants to cause us to make compromises. Holding firm God's word means that we study it wholeheartedly, believe it, obey it, and apply it to our lives. We need to be constantly building up the safeguards in our minds and set the correct boundaries on what we will allow in front of us to the best possible of our abilities. 
You know, what we read and watch and participate in influences us. You know, the content of TV, gaming, streaming has gotten so dark. And it just keeps getting darker. If we allow our minds to be filled with immoral thoughts, then immoral actions will follow. So this week, can we take a serious look at at our lives and where we are in the context of the light of Christ, the light of Jesus? We all drift in our walk with the Lord, but... God's grace abounds if we're ready to repent, to stay on course toward godliness. We must closely examine our motives. God calls us to be Christians in the culture without becoming culture Christians. This week, take some time and consider, are you standing firm, holding the word of God close to your heart and your mind, or... Are you integrating well into our culture? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are so merciful, Father. We are a people that are not able to succeed on a daily basis. We fail. We misrepresent you, Lord. But your grace and your mercy is, uh, is powerful, Father. And I just pray that you would help us to hold your word close to our hearts, that we can use it to build up our mind, that the Spirit would engage with us and help show us what it is uh, that's wrong in our hearts, that's, that's wrong with our thoughts. Help us to become more godly, Lord, I pray. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to look at those around us and see that where they should be is in a place where they have love around them, that we can invite them, that we want the lost here, that this isn't a place for the saved. This is a a hospital, a spiritual hospital to engage the lost and to build your kingdom here on earth, Father. I just pray that you would give us the need in our hearts to reach those that that don't have any light in their life. pray that you would help us to be lights, help us to shine the light of Christ through us as a result of... (coughs) being in your presence, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.